0: All right, all right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Continuing our study through the book of Romans, Romans chapter nine. Where we'll be this morning, Romans chapter nine. Now I love Romans chapter nine. It is a fascinating, complex, deep, exciting chapter, but it is also one of, if not, the most controversial chapter in the Bible. And because of that, to be honest with you, I have been dreading this week. But one of the benefits of expository preaching, that is, preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, is that it forces my hand to deal with harder passages that, in my flesh, I would maybe want to just skip. So my goal this morning, uh, and every morning, really, every Sunday morning, is to teach and to explain and to proclaim the Word of God to you, both in its encouraging parts and its more difficult parts. And while my goal this morning is not to cause controversy or to cause doubts in you, it is, however, to proclaim the Scriptures in the way that I understand them. Because there is nothing more or less than I can do than explain them the way I understand them. This is a passage that I have studied for years, both through Bible college and seminary and on my own, and there were times that I have struggled through this passage with tears and with frustration, and yet now through all of those things, I've come to appreciate it and love it and be so encouraged by it. But it has been a journey. So let me just say this, today and every Sunday as I proclaim the word of God, as I see it, and in preaching to try to explain and convince you from the scriptures, it's truth. I do that not as your pope. I have no more authority than what has been given to me by you, and I am fallible and on a very, very rare occasion wrong. But the word of God is not fallible. The word of God is not an error. It is truth and my and our authority is in it and what it says so this morning and every morning I'm going to proclaim to you the word of God as I understand it as I have studied it and as I believe it now that said I would remind you of a helpful tool as we go into this difficult week a tool called theological triage this is a helpful thing it's a helpful paradigm because if you imagine a nurse in the ER Uh, When someone comes in and they have a cold, they might sit in the ER for five hours, and someone who walks in off the street with a knife hanging out of their side gets to go past them and go straight in. Why? Because it was a more pressing, bigger issue of concern, and so they triaged it. You have a cold, you can continue to wait, you've got a knife, you get to go right now. In the same way, our theology or our doctrine can be triaged. There are some things that are of the utmost importance. They are a big deal. And there are some things that there is much room for disagreement over. So, usually we break these down into three tiers. The first tier issues are those issues which, if you disagree with those, you're not a Christian. If you disagree that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, you are not a Christian. The first tier issue. A second tier issue are those issues that, if you disagree with them... We can still be brothers, we can still be partners in the gospel, we can go mission trips together, we can be friends, but it's probably not the most helpful thing for us to be in the same church together. Those would be issues like baptism, the Lord's Supper, church government. So if you want to baptize babies, it's probably just not the church for you because we're not going to do that. A third tier issue are those issues, while important... We are able to have good disagreements over them. We are able to understand them in different ways, to think through them differently, with no division amongst us, but disagreeing and parting friends and church members and co-laborers together. This morning's topic is a third-tier issue. This morning's topic in Romans 9, if you're familiar with, is the topic of the doctrine of election. And I don't mean the election in 2024. I mean the election of God long, long ago. Now, let me say one last thing. We should not be afraid of doctrines or words like election, like predestination. Sometimes these words are scary and we want to avoid them. We really shouldn't be scared of these words. The Bible uses these words, uh, and the Bible uses them for our good and for our building up. And so we should be people who want to know what they mean when the Bible talks about them. Now, I thought it would be helpful as we dive into uh, to this to first read our statement of faith. That is, if you belong to our church, we agree on on a lot of things together. We have a statement of faith we hold to, full of first and second tier doctrines and uh, some third things, but things you must believe to be a member of our church. So I want to read this section uh, concerning election, because this is what we believe as a church concerning election, because we do believe something about election. We must, at a minimum, believe this. We might believe more than this, but at a minimum, here's what we believe. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, wholly unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility." Now, let me give you a quick 30,000-foot uh, view of this issue that has been debated for 2,000 years. I want to give you kind of the four main positions, and, and uh, there's a lots of positions. I can't go through all of them. But on the far left, we have a position called open theism, which says God does not know the future. Okay? God might be really good at chess, and he might be able to, good to predict the future, but at the end of the day, he doesn't know it for certain. That is heresy. We don't believe that. On the far right side, we have a doctrine called determinism, which says that God has so determined everything that's going to happen that everyone is a puppet or a robot and our choices don't matter because God has forced our hand and made us do what we were going to do. That is also heresy. The Bible talks about our free will or our agency, and so that is heresy. Uh, then you come back over here a little bit more to the left, you have a doctrine called Arminianism, all right, which none of us in our church should hold. It says that you can lose your salvation, uh, and it says that God's choice is based uh, on foreseen merit in you and all those kinds of things. Then right here, we have a doctrine called Calvinism, which we'll get into somewhat. But what we can hold as a church is everything from here to just this side of Arminianism, and there's about 50 positions in the middle. And so any of that we can hold to as a church. That's kind of a 30,000-foot view. As we jump into the next few chapters, I want you to understand that chapters 9 through 11 really should be taken as a whole. They're kind of a section unto themselves, and similar chapters 1 through 3 were. Chapter 9, as we're going to see, emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Chapter 10 is going to emphasize the opposite end of that spectrum. It's going to emphasize human responsibility. And then chapter 11 kind of ties them together. So we learn in chapter 11 uh, uh, that Paul is using a scribe to write. He's dictating, and there's a guy who is writing for Paul. And I imagine that after chapter 8, he says, Dude, you're going to need to go home and get you, take a day off, get a night's sleep, because the next three chapters are going to be a doozy. Get ready. Before we dive in, Romans 11, at the end of this section, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. At the conclusion of this difficult section of Scripture, Paul ends it with a section of praise to God and says, how unsearchable are your ways. And so let us be clear that we are to only try to understand what has been revealed in the Scriptures, no more and no less. As Deuteronomy reminds us that the hidden things belong to the Lord, We don't know the hidden things. We are to know the revealed things. So let's go Romans 9 and let's do our best. Romans 9, 1 through 5. Paul writes it in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and pens these words I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now this is one of the most emotional sections or passages I think that is in the New Testament. You can imagine Paul here weeping as he dictates these words. Paul is looking at the known world and he has been trying to to reach people and he sees people coming to faith from all over the world except for his brothers, the Jews. The Jews were his harshest critics. And by and large, they were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And this has so broken the heart of Paul that he is longing for his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to faith, that he goes so far as to say that he wishes he could be cut off from Christ if it meant that they would come to faith. He is saying that he would go so far as to say, I would go to hell and lose my salvation, go to hell for eternity if it meant that my people would trust in Christ. If you get nothing else out of today's confusing sermon, get this. We should be as burdened as Paul is over those who do not know Jesus. We should be as burdened as Paul is over those who do not know Jesus. And let's all be clear, I'm not at this level. I don't think any of you are at this level. Because I don't know that there's any people that I'm willing and ready to go to hell for. What I think maybe we should start doing is praying and asking God to give us the sort of missionary heart that Paul has, sort of the evangelistic burden heart that Paul has. Because if we all had just half of the evangelistic fervor and burden of Paul, I think we would see a lot more people come to faith in our community. But, but notice next how Paul begins to build his argument here. He starts by describing his heartache for his Jewish family that don't know Jesus. And then he describes who these Jews are. He says that, you know, they're the, they're the ones that God has called uh, in adoption. He's called them His people through the Old Testament. They received the law. They were the prophets. They had prophecy and promises made to them. They had the patriarchs. They had the temple. They were the people through whom the Messiah has come. All these promises made to and for them. And so the obvious question gets anticipated and answered in verse 6. The question is, well, has God failed? Has God's word failed? If God made all these promises to Israel and he said that they were his people and now they reject his Messiah and they do not believe, has God failed them? And if God has failed them, maybe God could fail me. If God's word could fail, if his promises could fail, them, then they could fail me. And so Paul in verse 6, anticipating and answering this question, says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear, and we'll discuss this in the next three chapters, but Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah does not mean God's word has failed. But does it mean that God has failed. So how is it? How is it that if his word hasn't failed, if God's chosen people have rejected him, how is it that his word has not failed? Notice the second part of verse 6. God's word has not failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is a huge verse. This has actually always been true, been through throughout the Old Testament, that not every Jew was saved. Not every Israelite man or woman was a child who belonged to God. Rather, to be a Jew, a true Jew, was a matter of the heart. It was a matter of faith. It wasn't a matter of external conformity to the law by being circumcised and following all of these commandments. But rather, it was about having a circumcised heart, a changed heart, having faith. Even in the Old Testament, there was a distinction between Jews who were only Jews by heritage and those who embraced God through faith in the heart. Just like in chapter 2, Paul talks about that true circumcision was the cutting away of skin from the physical body, or circumcision is cutting away from skin from the physical body, but true circumcision, spiritual circumcision, is cutting away spiritual deadness from your heart. His point is that true Israel, the true people of God, are not those of Jewish nationality, But those who have faith. True Israel are not those of Jewish nationality, but those who have faith in God and his Messiah. So then the real Israel, the real people of God, is not made up of Jews, but of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who place their faith in Christ. So listen carefully. So the word of God has not failed to save Israel because Israel, true Israel, is not just Jews. True Israel is everyone who belongs to Jesus by faith. So if you have faith in Christ, you are part of Israel. God has not failed to save his people. His word and his promises have not failed because all around us there are people coming to faith in Christ who now belong to true Israel. Does that make sense? He concludes his argument this way to kind of sum it up. He concludes and he says, not all are children of Abraham, Because they are his offspring, his children. He says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, right, descendants of Israel, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, who are counted as offspring. So Israel isn't people who live in Israel and who are Jewish. Israel are people of the promise, have placed their faith in the promised Messiah. True Israel is not an ethnic group. It is everyone who belongs to Jesus by faith. God's word never failed because God never promised that he would save every individual within ethnic Israel. He promised that he would save from every tribe and tongue and nation, and that is exactly what he is doing. He did not promise that there would always, he, he did promise that there would always be a remnant of, That means a a small group within Israel, there would always be some Jews that would be saved. And that's verse 27 at the end of the chapter. That he would save some from within ethnic Israel. And this has always been true. Just as God chose Isaac over Ishmael, God has the right to choose who is a part of his family and who is not. God's word never fails. Which leads Paul to his next illustration. Now before we talk about Jacob and Esau, I want you to notice the question that Paul anticipates being asked. And so he goes ahead and asks that anticipated question for our benefit. A question that is the natural response to Paul's point about Jacob and Esau. And it's in verse 14. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So whatever Paul is about to say, he knows that our natural question is going to be, is God wrong? Is God unjust for doing this? So keep that in mind as we talk about Jacob and Esau that it might seem unjust, but it's not. So look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now remember, this is still a part of the same argument, the argument that says that the word of God has not failed to save all of God's people. So how does, God, how does Paul argue for that? Well, he goes back to the Old Testament, as he, always, as he likes to do. He goes back to a familiar story, and he says, why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Because when you think about it, Jacob was a jerk. Jacob was deceptive. He was a liar. He was a cheater. And Esau, his brother, was hardworking, loyal, good man by all accounts. And so why choose Jacob? Well, just before that verse, he talks about Jacob's uh, father, Isaac. And he talks about how Isaac and Ishmael, God chooses uh, Isaac and not Ishmael. And you might determine, when you think about God choosing them, that he chooses Isaac because Isaac is the legitimate son. right? Ishmael is the son of the slave woman. So he chooses Isaac because he's legitimate. But that's not the case, and that's why he gives us the second illustration of Jacob and Esau. He says, well, God chose them before they were born, before they did anything good or bad, good or evil. So God's choice, God's election has nothing to do with, with you and what you have done good or bad. Paul is making clear that God's choice is God's choice and it's for his own good pleasure that he chooses in accordance with his purposes and not based on the actions or status or doings of men. He didn't choose Isaac or Jacob because of anything they did or did not do. Paul is trying to make that point clear. He says this makes God's election clear that it's not about human will or exertion but about God calls. So why hasn't the word of God failed? Why hasn't God's word failed if Israel is not coming? Because everyone to whom God has called, everyone to whom God has elected, everyone to whom God has said, you will be my people, will or has come to faith in Christ. Paul's point is God's word hasn't failed and it can't fail and it won't fail because everyone God has called or elected to be saved, to be a part of that remnant, has come and has been saved, or in the future they will come and they will be saved. God's word hasn't failed because everyone he calls or elects will choose to come to faith in Christ. Let me read that statement again. I want you to notice two parts of that. God's word hasn't failed because everyone he calls or elects will choose to come to faith in Christ. Now, notice in that statement... You have both the sovereignty of God and his election and choosing, and you have our freedom or our choosing to come to faith. It has been most helpful described to me to talk about a door frame, And over that doorframe, it says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you've got to choose to go through that door and believe in Jesus and be saved. And if you choose to open that door and walk through on the other side of that doorframe, you see you were chosen before the foundation of the world. We have to deal with the question next that Paul anticipates. Is God unjust for doing this? Is God wrong to choose some, to save some, to give mercy to some and not save and give mercy to others? Is God unfair to only show some people mercy? Well, after Paul asks this question, he goes back to the Old Testament. Is God unjust? He says, Absolutely not. Verse 15. Here's his reason. He says, For here's why he's not unjust. For, for God tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The question is: did God do something wrong by showing mercy to Jacob, by choosing Jacob and not Esau? But by its very definition, mercy, mercy is not receiving something you deserve. Mercy means. While we deserved one thing, punishment and justice, instead, God chooses to relent and extend mercy and not give us justice. So therefore, God is not obligated. He does not owe anyone mercy. He does not, he does not have to give it to anyone. No one can say to God it is unfair for God to show it to one and not the other. It is his mercy to give. Paul's logic goes like this. He says, one, are you saying that God owes someone salvation? Is God to owe someone salvation? No, of course not. Well, then, if he owes no one salvation, then he is free to give it to either A, everyone, B, some people, or C, no one. It's completely his choice. Fairness is that we all get what we rightly deserve and according to Romans chapter 1 through 3 that we rightly deserve justice in hell. So Paul is writing to us to make sure that we see things clearly that we are not owed to mercy but it is a free gift that God chooses to bestow upon his people. It reminds me of the parable Jesus tells in the book of Matthew of the laborers in the vineyard. Remember, he tells this story about a landowner who goes out, and he hires some guys at at 9 a.m. to go work in his field, and then he goes and hires some more guys at at noon, and then he goes and hires some guys at at 3, and then he goes and hires some guys at 4 p.m., and then they all work till about 7, and when it's all said and done, he pays them all the same, the guys that have been working all day, and then the guys that have been working for a couple hours, and obviously, those guys get mad. They feel like they deserved more. They feel like they were cheated, but what does the landowner say? He says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to do with what I choose, do what I choose with what belongs to me? Is it not mine to give? Mercy. Salvation is God's to give, and we are not entitled to it. We deserve and should get justice. And God is not obligated to give us mercy, nor is he obligated to give it to everyone or to anyone, nor is it unfair for him to give it to some and not to others. It is God's mercy, and he will give it to whom he will give it. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. God is not obligated to give mercy to anyone. He gives it freely to those he chooses. In verse 16, Paul writes, So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. So God... God doesn't look down and say, oh, this person deserves it more than that one. This person's good. This person's bad, so I'm going to give it to this one and not that one. This one's more sincere, so I'm going to give it to that one. No, that's not the case. The only reason we have for why God chooses some and not others is that the choice had nothing to do with anything in or about us. The only other hint we have that it's not about us based on God's choosing The only other hint we have comes in the next verse after he says, he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He moves on from Moses and he goes to Pharaoh. In verse 17, he says, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I raised you up, Pharaoh, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God hardens Pharaoh's heart and raises him up for the very purpose to display his power over him that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that God's glory would cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. See, God was able to show his power over wickedness and his loving commitment to save his people by delivering Moses and the Israelites and hardening and condemning Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God's purposes are higher than ours, and He saves who He wants, and He hardens whom He wants. And it is all in an effort for one main purpose, and that is His glory. You see, everything God does is first and foremost for His own glory. Saving you and me, sending His Son to die for our sins, is first and foremost for God's glory. Why doesn't He save everyone? I have no earthly idea. I have no idea. But I know that God is better than me. I know that he's good. I would say gooder than me, but that's not a word. I know he's wise. He's wiser than me. I know that whatever his reasons are, if he told me, I would agree with them. For he's the Lord and I'm not. But whatever he does, he does so so that his name may be magnified in all the earth. And he has chosen to save some and not all. And so we must choose to trust that he's wiser than us and that he's good. Tim Keller pastor says it this way he says if god had mercy on all or condemned all we would not see his glory i don't think paul is giving us much more than a hint here but it is a very suggestive hint for the biggest question is if god could save everyone why doesn't he and here paul seems to say that god's chosen course to save some and leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth god's glory than any other scheme we can imagine Everything God does is first and foremost for his glory. Now, sometimes that might be a hard concept for us to understand. It might seem selfish and egotistical. But two quick thoughts. One, if God made anything else more important than himself, it would be for him idolatry. For he is the most glorious good thing in the universe, and he must always be first, even when it comes to himself. Second, astronomers say that it is a good thing that the sun and not the earth is at the center of the solar system. Because if the earth were at the center, it would never have enough gravitational ability to hold the rest of the solar system in orbit and we would all die. Because the sun is 30,000 times bigger than the earth, and because it is an independent source of light and heat, it can sustain an orderly solar system that enables us to have life. So if the sun were a person, the most loving thing the sun could do would be to keep itself at the center. And so it is with God. If God is the pinnacle of joy for us, then having him at the center recognized for his worth and importance is the most loving thing he can do for us. You see, everything God does is for his own glory, and that happens to be really, really good news for us as well. Now, Paul anticipates another really good and natural question in verse 19. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault Or who can resist his will? That's a great question. Why does God still find fault in people? He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. How can He find fault in Pharaoh? Because how can Pharaoh resist God's will? If God is hardening Pharaoh's heart and using him for this purpose, how can how can he be to blame? How is God going to hold him accountable for that? When God had uh, uh, Assyria come and take out Israel, and He said, "The is my right arm," and then He judged him for it. Right? How is how is God judging? people, and nations for things that he is, he is calling them to do? Who can resist his will? If Pharaoh, it's a great question, and I'm glad Paul anticipates it. If Pharaoh is just playing the role God meant for him to play, if God raised him up for that purpose, then how can God hold him accountable? That's the question. If God is the one in control of Pharaoh, if God is sovereign over him, then how can God hold him accountable? Well, what we see in Pharaoh is the same thing we see Paul warned us about in Romans chapter 2 that God gives people over to themselves to do whatever they want. If you go back and read the Exodus account, Pharaoh actually hardens his own heart against God five times before God ever hardens it himself. Before God gives Pharaoh over to himself, hardens his heart and says, do whatever you want, Pharaoh hardens his own heart five times. And it's not until the sixth plague that God finally gives up on Pharaoh. The point is, God is not responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh is. God is not responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh is responsible. But in the end, God does give Pharaoh over to himself. He does harden him. He does make his power known through him. But Pharaoh was no puppet on a string. He was no robot being forced against his will. Pharaoh chose to do exactly what he wanted. Would all sinners apart from the grace of God want to be their own king? I want you to understand something very clearly. I think this is a helpful thing. There are two people that do not exist when we think about these things. The person who says, God save me. And God says, sorry, no, I didn't choose you. You can't come. That person doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. Person that says, "God save me," and says, "Nope, didn't choose you. Sorry, that doesn't happen." And then the person that says, "God, I want nothing to do with you." See you says, "Well, I chose you, so come on up." That never happens either. Those who reject God do so because they want to. C.S. Lewis said it this way: Hell is a is always a door first locked from the inside. Hell is always a door first locked from the inside. And then he also says, no one goes to hell who doesn't choose to be there. These are hard things to think through. And no matter what position you hold on these complicated things, we all should hold to a form of what is called compatibilism. That is, that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or man's freedom, man's will, our responsibility, are compatible. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible. They are both true simultaneously. Is God sovereign or are we free? Yes. Is God in control or do we have choices? Yes. Is it God's will going to happen or our will? Yes. Did I get saved because I chose God or did I get saved because God chose me? Yes. Both. The late D. James Kennedy uses a really helpful illustration. He says, Say you have five people holding up a bank, they want to go rob this bank, and uh, a friend of theirs finds out, and uh, the friend comes and he pleads with them, don't rob the bank, don't do it, I beg of you, please don't do it. And finally, they push the friend out of the way and head out. But at the last ditch effort, the friend tackles the weakest looking one of them and wrestles him to the ground. The others go on without him and rob the bank, and in the process, they kill a guard and two civilians. They are captured, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. But the one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask this question, whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame their friend? And this other man who is walking around free, can he say, it's because my heart is so good and resisted temptation that I am free? No, of course not. The only reason he is free is because of his friend who restrained him. So it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves, but those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. If anyone is saved, the credit is God alone. But if anyone is lost, the blame is all theirs. God is not forcing anyone to not come. We have only scratched the surface of this chapter. Many thick books have been written on it, but this is about all we've got time for. But I want to leave you with a couple applications to think about as we wrestle through this. One, you have to believe something about election and predestination. You don't have to agree with me. I'm not your pope. I'm your pastor. It's my job to teach you the best I can and point you to the scriptures and plead with you to believe them, and I can only do that the way I understand them, but if by your study you come to a different conclusion, it's not heretical, that's fine as long as your belief is rooted in the scriptures. That said, you have to believe something about election. It's all over the Bible, not just this chapter, it's, all, it's everywhere. You can't ignore it. You can't say you don't believe in election. You have to believe something about it. To so read, study, ask questions, wrestle, and figure it out. This chapter reminds us that we're not worthy of the gospel. Reminds us that God does not owe any of us salvation. No matter what position you hold, we agree on that. That he, God, owes us. If he owes us anything, he owes us hell. But by his grace, he has called us to himself and given us his son and loved us when we were unlovable. Reminds us we're not worthy of the gospel. Three, you would not be more merciful than God. I think sometimes, I know I am, we're tempted to think that if we were in charge, we would do things differently. We would save everyone, right? We'd just bring everybody up to heaven. We'd save everybody. But every time the Bible contrasts our mercy to God's, we come out looking like jerks and God looks great. Think about it this way. When when the human race kicked God off his throne in the Garden of Eden and rebelled against him, God responded to that insult by sending his son to die. But when someone cuts you off in traffic, you fantasize about ramming your car into them. Or you show them your favorite finger. God is more merciful than we would ever dream of being, and it's not close. Four, this truth removes all pride. We could have just as easily been Pharaoh. God, But God showed us mercy when we were undeserving Salvation is a gift, it is a miracle. We don't boast, we don't give credit to ourselves, we give credit to the only one who is worthy of any credit, and that is the Lord. As Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. It is a gift. Five, whatever you believe about election, it should, it ought, it must spur evangelism. You might ask, as many have, if God chooses who he will save, why would we share the gospel with anyone? He gets to that in the next chapter, but this doctrine should spur our desire to share Christ because we know that Jesus can actually answer our prayers when we plead with him to save. We believe that God can actually save. We don't pray. When we have a loved one who is far from God, what we don't do in the distress of wanting them to come to faith is pray, God, please help them to choose you. But we pray, God, do whatever you have to do to save them. And in those moments, whether we believe it or not, we really hope it's true. It is through prayer and sharing the gospel that are the means God has chosen to bring about the salvation of those he is saving. So we must pray and we must share. A.A. A. Hodge said it this way, does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed the day you will die? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? You eat to live. Well, what happens if you don't eat? You will die. Then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. We're Baptists. We should get there. Eating is the preordained way God has appointed for living. In the same way, it is the sharing of the gospel that God has appointed for men to come to faith, and so we must share. This chapter starts with the broken heart of a man who wants to see his kinsmen saved. And he gives us this great doctrine to remind us that their blood is not on our hands and that the word of God never fails and that the gospel is so powerful that he can change the likes of Paul, a terrorist's heart, to believe it. And if he can do that, he can change anyone's heart. And so we must never give up on anyone because God can save them no matter how hard their hearts are, no matter how far away they are from him. God can save, and the God who never fails, who never loses, He will save those whom He has called. As John six reminds us, all that the Father give me will come to me. And so, whatever we believe about election, it should spur missions and evangelism. Finally, six. This doctrine should never cause doubt but give comfort and assurance. Sometimes we hear about a doctrine like this and it makes us doubt, it makes us worried, and we say, maybe I'm not chosen. I've been in church my whole life and I've believed in Jesus, been baptized, but maybe I'm not chosen. That's so stupid. That's not what we're talking about. not that you've completely missed the point. This is a secondary explanatory doctrine. It is to say that if you came to faith in Christ, if you've believed on Jesus, why did you come? Well, you didn't come because you were smarter than everybody else. I've met most of you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You didn't come because you were smarter, because you were more sensible, but rather you came because you were like Jonah, running from God, but God never stopped running after you. If you believe in Jesus, it is because God from the beginning of time set his love and affection on you and he came after you to save you and so you can rest in the comfort that his love will never fail you. He will never let you go. He will never leave you. You will never outrun his grace. If You are here this morning and you want to know the grace and mercy of a God who gives out mercy to the worst of sinners then come this morning and meet him. And when you meet him, You'll be brought into his family. He will save you. He will change your life forever, and he will make you whole. And only then will you see on the other side of that door that he has been after you for a long time, and you've been fighting him and fighting him. But in his love, he never gave up on you. And he'll keep coming, and he'll keep coming. So why don't you listen and come to him? Pray. Father, this morning... Sometimes we don't get to just talk about the encouraging, easy text. But you've chosen to put these difficult ideas, these difficult concepts, these things we've got to wrestle with. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us in the wrestling through these things. And I pray that you'd remind us that it's okay, that it's hard. It's hard to think about, hard to wrestle with. It's okay for us to disagree on the intricacies of this would help us to wrestle with your word and to read it and to, to care to know the truth. But God, this morning, would you remind us that whatever we believe about this, your love never fails, your word never fails. You will save to the uttermost. You will make a people told by your name, you've made a new nation of people that isn't ethnic Jews, but is of every tribe, tongue, and nation who has placed their faith in Christ. You've made them brothers and sisters and heirs to a throne. You show us this morning, God, that you've loved us for a long, long time. You've loved us before we even knew your name. You loved us before there was a twinkle in our mother's eye at us. God, how thankful we are that you run after us, that no matter like Jonah we are and run away from you, you come running after us. Thank you, God, that you have not given us over to ourselves and to our flesh to live out the things we want, but you've changed our hearts, changed our affections, opened our eyes and opened our ears and changed our hearts that we might behold the wondrous mystery of a God who loves sinners. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this big, amazing God, I'm going to stand right over here as we sing. Let me introduce you as he brings you home. Come talk to me. If, you need, if you're here this morning you need to talk about anything, we want to pray with you. I'm going to stand up right up here. God, give us courage to respond. In Christ's name we pray, all those people said,